Well, morning, everyone. That's pretty good. So uh, Tim kicked off the Dependence series last week, and today I have the privilege of taking uh, a turn and talking about some of the, the fundamentals of prayer, specifically this week. You know, what is it? Uh, our passage today is Daniel 6, a very familiar story if you grew up in a church context. Um, it's about Daniel in the lion's den. Now, you might be wondering why that one. Uh, well, for those who don't know me, I'm also named Daniel, and I typically focus on software engineering during the week, although I'm also one of the more infrequent speakers on the teaching team here. Uh, you might know me better as the dude who's blessed to be Sarah's husband. She's back doing the slides today. Uh, or perhaps uh, as father to an energetic five-year-old boy named Levi. Now, he's actually the reason for Daniel 6. Uh, as a few months back, Levi asked me to read him the story from the Bible. I don't know if it was because it's about a Daniel and that's my name too, or maybe he just recently heard the story at school or something. But it definitely left a mark on me because I knew the series was coming. And I want to make sure we're all clear up front, uh, there aren't a lot of similarities between me uh, and the biblical Daniel, other than the name. He lived in the 6th century BC and he worked as a faithful administrator uh, to Babylonian and Persian kings. I'm more of the millennial software engineer type. Now, granted our name means the same, God is my judge, but I grew up in a time when he also wasn't the most famous Daniel. Now, for those who don't remember 80s movies at all, uh, Ralph Macchio was the karate kid. You know, long before Jaden Smith. And while Jackie Chan, he was pretty good as Mr. Miyagi, I still prefer the original. Now, I grew up doing some Taekwondo, not karate, and here's a fun picture of me and my sister doing Taekwondo as kids. Now, as you might imagine, growing up doing Taekwondo, uh, Daniel-san was a lot more relevant than the biblical prophet Daniel. I got called Daniel-san all the time, and of course, I got, I've got to show a quick picture of Levi to prove that we look nothing alike at that age. He's holding a bunch of yarn there. <clears throat> anyway, cute pictures aside, uh, we've got some biblical wax-on, wax-off training to do. Today's question is, what is prayer? And let me start by a little quick practice and asking God to bless our time, and then we can jump right in. God, I'm thankful for the opportunity this morning to open your word um, with this community, and I just ask for wisdom for all of us. As we um, come here this morning, we look forward to the week ahead. God, we need you. And um, I ask that you would give us a desire and a want to pray more uh, as we uh, turn to you in dependence. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what is prayer? Well, the first definition that comes to mind, uh, having grown up in the church, is communication with God. Uh, but to be honest, I don't feel like that answers a whole lot. I think we all admit that it's a different thing than making a phone call, and I can't tell you what God's voice sounds like. I, I want to say Morgan Freeman, but then that's just making another movie reference. This morning, I'd like to look at the story of Daniel in the lion's den, because it's a story that we've probably all heard, but in the context of prayer, I think it provides a really good picture of what prayer is, and also a couple of things it isn't. Now, the book of Daniel itself is really interesting. It's both historical and prophetic. Um, the chapters 1 through 6 follow events from Daniel's life during the 70-year span that the Jewish, exile, or Jewish uh, nation was exiled to Babylon. 
Uh, chapters 7 through 12, though, are really, really different. They contain dreams and prophecies about the future, and they're sometimes difficult to interpret, but they also teach about the coming of a son of man, a term that Jesus frequently uses when referring to himself. Now, one other interesting fact about the book, uh, it's written in two different languages, uh, Hebrew and Aramaic. And to real Bible geeks, uh, the literary structure of the book has a certain poetic symmetry to it. Now, I'm not an expert on that, but one thing that I do think we get to see in this story is God's power revealed in irony. Flipping the script on how humans do things to show that uh, God chooses to do things differently. How, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, God uses the things that aren't to shame the things that are. How he exalts the humble and shatters the proud and shows that he's the one really in control. So let's open up Daniel 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So to put this intro into perspective, at the beginning of the book, this Hebrew teenager named Daniel initially gets hauled off to serve a Babylonian king. Now, he serves through multiple rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and now Darius, but he starts out in the palace considerably lower than the unpaid intern level. Yet, by this time, of the third king, he's made it all the way up to senior vice president, and he's possibly looking at a, an upcoming promotion to kingdom CFO. Yeah, I know it's not a modern tech company, but translating the terminology uh, doesn't hurt when it comes to understanding the level of responsibility that we're talking about here. So, having faithfully served in Babylon for a long time, it's amazing to me that the other administrators can't find anything to bring charges against Daniel. I mean, this feels like a minor miracle in itself. There wasn't some decision that went sideways, um, some impactful mistake, something Daniel missed that they could just pile onto or spin the wrong way. Already, we're looking at someone supernaturally gifted in their role. And as a result, um, even in the envy of the other administrators, Daniel's lifestyle ends up leading them straight to God. Right up front, they come to the conclusion that this guy's connection to his God is his weakness. Or is it? But that's what they're going to target with maximum entrapment. So verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed... Uh, certainly not all agree, as that presumably would have included Daniel, have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty issued the decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So, King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, this morning, I want to pause here and do a little activity, but I'm going to need six volunteer satraps to help. Any volunteers? 
Okay, Malik, Dan, one, um, yep, there's four. I need two more. Okay, one more. Anyone from this side? Let's do it. All right, as we just read in the text, these advisors uh, are going to set up a trap with a stupid law while ingratiating themselves to the king. So I have here some signs. Okay, I've got blue signs and red signs. And basically, um, what I'm going to ask you guys to do is take the blue signs, the three blue signs with rules, and the three red signs with um, punishments and time periods. And I want you to um, arrange them into three different laws. Okay, so here you guys go. Just pass them out first. Now, uh, many thanks to Laura for prepping all these signs. They look really amazing. <clears throat> anyway, um, so the idea in the story is that these guys are going to make a rule that hurts Daniel a whole lot more than it hurts them. And that's classic legalism, right? You set up the rewards that disproportionately benefit yourself and hurt other people. So uh, what I want you guys to do is assemble the least painful um, laws that you can come up with, matching the blue signs with the red signs. So reorganize, talk amongst yourselves, figure out what the least painful thing is you can come up with. Yeah. They get like 30 seconds. <laughs> All right, while they're doing that, um, anyone know good, good jokes? <laughs> I'm kidding. You guys got it? <laughs> Least painful? Yeah. We want least painful here. Let's let's oh, not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow, these are great. <clears throat> All right. Um, so the advisors found Daniel's pressure points. I'm, I'm a little bit confused at your pressure points here. So we have uh, no lifting weights for one hour, else public disapproval. That's a good one. Uh, no eating pizza for one day or a $1,000 fine. So that's more important than lifting weights. Or sorry, weight, lifting weights is more important than pizza, right? Well, because, I mean, if you make a law, then you're going to have to lift weights. Yeah. Yeah. You can't live without lifting weights? See, lifting weights is important to you, but not to you. <laughs> All right, we'll, okay, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do one more and uh, rearrange in just a second then here. And at, at the end, we've got no smartphone use for one month or death by lions. You guys really could do that? I'm in... Oh, I see. Yeah, I think you guys need to go least painful here. Like, I'll give you a second to, to fix it up a little bit. All right. <laughs> Yeah, we would all be dead if that was that if that last one happened. Oh no, I do this on the daily. Yeah. All right. All right, there we go. So so now this is a little bit better here. 
All right, thank you, advisors. Woo! All right, now the fun part is um, I'm actually going to pick one of these and we're going to sign it into law because that makes it more fun, right? Uh, let's see here. No lifting weights, no eating pizza, no smart. I'm going to go with no smartphones. Oh, yeah. One hour. Let's do it. One hour. Yeah. At least it's not a month in Death by Lions, right? So there we go. All right. Thank you very much. Y'all can go back and take a seat. Please give them a round of applause. <laughs> there we go. All right, we'll set that one up there. All right, so I signed the no smartphones for an hour one. Um, yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm actually serious. Tim and Mike uh, said that I could do this. So literally, uh, go with me on this. Pull out your phone. Hold down the buttons on the side until it says you can power me off. There we go. And it's off. Now, the point here is that um, the advisors saw that Daniel's pressure point was his connection to his God. And so what we're going to do here is we are going to disconnect ourselves from the internet for an hour. Now, uh, if you're taking notes, there's pens in the seat in front of you. There's also Bibles. Um, also, if you've got kids here, uh, Robin's assured me that like, if anything goes wrong, they will come over here and get you. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. The live stream apparently is still going. I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, um, so now raise your hand if you don't have a smartphone that's powered on. If you don't have a smart, if your smartphone is powered off, or you don't have one. All right. Good. No public disapproval needed. We're good. <clears throat> now, how does that disconnection from the rest of humanity feel? Hmm? All right, so back to the passage, and we'll come back to this, I'm sure. Uh, stupid laws happen, right? But the one Darius signed was pretty extraordinarily bad. Now, don't take my interpretation as fact or anything, but the way I read it is basically, hey, king, you're handsome, awesome, and super smart. Let's do June as Darius month. And like everyone who would normally, I don't know, pray or whatever should consult you instead because your decisions and everything you say are totally the best. On the surface, it's a pretty effective appeal to the king's pride and vanity. And, you know, A+, plus. it's working out well, right? Well, when I read through this a few months ago with Levi, without focusing too much on what comes next, it's fun to think about what would, what would my response have been. Now, first of all, I assume that this couldn't happen today because it's blatant religious discrimination and violates my First Amendment rights. But let's say I was stuck in ancient Babylon where the king made the laws. Well, my reaction would basically, basically be, Whatever, dude. Like, that's one month long, and it's almost completely unenforceable, right? I wouldn't have to pray to the king. It's not like that time when Nebuchadnezzar made everyone, including Rakshak and Benny, bow down and worship him, or worship the idol. This isn't directly violating commandment one, no other gods before me. This law is more chill. Just don't pray out loud before meals. And, you know, even if you caught me kneeling at home, you couldn't prove I wasn't meditating. So yeah, no provable praying to God for a month, but since it's punishable by death, yeah, I, I probably would need to be careful. But it's not requiring me to compromise my faith, right? I mean, let's face it, it might be harder just living back then without indoor plumbing or smartphones. This law is ridiculous, but only for 30 days? I think I could handle that. And rewind that for a second. I think I could handle that? Right? Where this Daniel is about to get an A in prayer and dependence on God, I totally flunked the course in one statement. I think I could handle that. 
So just so you know, that's who's teaching this morning. Someone who's stubborn and self-reliant and thus terrible at prayer. But maybe that's why I'm teaching this morning in a series on dependence, because God's word is actually calling me to repentance here as well. Everyone's phone still off? Cool. It'd be a shame if this thing were being recorded, right? <clears throat> also, I'm glad we don't have a slide for that quote. <clears throat> oh, thanks, Sarah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to make a pretty shocking assertion here. Ready? I am not God. I know, right? Guess what? You are not God either. I know, it's pretty basic stuff. But if we know this, then why do we act like we can handle everything by ourselves? I mean, let me say that again. If we know that we're not God, why do we still act like we can handle everything by ourselves? Why do we go about our days and not seek God's presence, His wisdom, and His glory? See, I think the story of Daniel and the lions can teach us, and is teaching me, three important things about prayer. First, prayer is connection. Second, prayer is dependence. And third, prayer is worship. Now, if you were here last week, these might sound pretty similar to Tim's points. Cool. That's sort of intentional, sort of not. Repetition isn't bad, and one of the goals of this series on dependence is seeing our consistent need for God as shown through different passages and communicated through different speakers. Now, the first one we all know in our heads, but it's harder to live. All humans need community, and they've got a deep need to be part of something bigger than ourselves. As Christians, we're together part of a church, and we have a connection to God through His Spirit that He's so generously given to each one of us. This connection is important. It's life-giving. It sustains us. And even with our human relationships, we know that you've, you've got to talk with people to avoid growing distant. Granted, there are some people you could probably call and pick up where you left off, even if you haven't talked for a year. But for our closest relationships, they always need time and investment. I mean, if you're married, you're not intentionally going to go a week without talking with your spouse, right? Or you're not just going to call your best friend on their, on their birthday only. Let's face it, we're more connection, connected with people that we know and people that we don't know than ever before. What's your screen time on social media this last week? I know you can't check right now because your phone's off. But confession, it's easier for my Twitter time to be a lot higher than my prayer time with God. Just because we need connection doesn't mean all connection's life-giving. Some is and some isn't. And look at what Jesus says in John 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you should be fine most of the time, but feel free to reach out if you need help. No, no, not at all what it says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, it's not that big a deal. Just make sure to show up on Sundays. No, I mean, Jesus says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Wow, a promise, and what a goal. The, the Father's glory revealed in us, living fruitful lives as Jesus' disciples, I mean, if we're the branches, prayer is a vital part of how we stay connected, making sure that Jesus' words remain in us. 
How are we to ask if we're not praying? How are we to bear fruit if we're not remaining in Jesus? Listen to the next part, though. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus wants us to share his joy because when we spend time connected to him, we realize that we are loved. We already know that not all connection is good, not all relationships are life-giving, but we usually elevate that focusing, or evaluate that by focusing on ourselves. Am I getting something from this relationship? How do I feel things are going? But when we're abiding in Jesus and focusing on God's will, Jesus promises that we'll find joy because life's not supposed to be about our will and our goals. If we're abiding in Jesus, there's a promise that even when life gets busy or hard or even monotonous, we're not alone. So that's the first thing we, we learn about prayer here. Prayer's connection, a vital part of experiencing Jesus and, and experiencing joy on a daily basis. So let's head back to Daniel and look at his response to the 30-day decree. Verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Now, this is amazing, right? The instructions were pretty simple, yet Daniel risks his job, risks his life, because he's unwilling to stop praying. But what if Daniel's not just unwilling? What if he's unable to stop praying because he sees his abilities, his wisdom, his strength, his life's meaning? They all depend upon God. Could it be that Daniel understood and experienced something about prayer that I don't? See, that's been a central takeaway for me from this passage, that I'm totally missing something important here. Now, I know I don't understand or experience prayer like Daniel did, or Jesus, who even as God in human form, frequently retreats from his disciples to spend time with his Father in prayer. If Jesus, who is God, looks to his Father for strength, how much more dependent should I be? I mean, that's the second principle, that prayer is dependence. And if it's regularly modeled by Jesus, why do I so frequently try to handle things myself? Now, remember when I said this story is ironic? Well, a few weeks ago, Tim said, in times of crisis, people pray. I believe this is true, because it's the times when we're out of our league, when the illusion of control shatters. Uh, that's when we realize that we're not Iron Man, that we actually need help and become a lot more dependent upon God. We need help from someone who is in control, who can do something when we can't. But the irony here, Daniel's time of crisis came because he prayed. Now, I also mentioned that this passage shows us a few things that prayer isn't. Prayer isn't to a genie where we just ask for stuff, you know, name it and claim it. God doesn't obey our will. Prayer is actually a way for us to get more in line with his. Prayer isn't just about us asking for stuff, though God does want us to ask. It's about aligning ourselves with the fact that God's always in control. 
And we need to take time to talk with him about it if we want to know joy and peace. So look what Daniel prays for in the text. It, it only mentions that he prays with thankfulness and for help. It doesn't say whether or not Daniel prayed the law would be changed. Daniel's devotion and dependence upon God was consistent, or perhaps a better word might be faithful. In this story, prayer wasn't the way God led him out of suffering. It was actually the way God led him right into deadly consequences. So here we are with the other jealous advisors having Daniel and the king, really, right where they want them. The king's hands are tied to a law they've ghostwritten, a fact acknowledged in verse 12, and now it's time to spring the full force of the trap on Daniel. Here goes. Verse 13, they said, Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of your exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So remember, the king's the only person in the kingdom that people are allowed by law to pray to this month. Well, he's been tricked and played the fool. And yet people were supposed to pray for him, to him for wisdom. He's upset and surprised, and yet people are supposed to rely on his foresight and his planning. And he's powerless to override his own signature. What was the point in praying to him again? Okay, so now for what I think is the most amazing and shocking irony in this story. Are you ready? In the next verse, we actually see something that looks remarkably like a prayer, spoken out loud to Daniel's God and on Daniel's behalf. Verse 16 so the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Are you kidding me? The only person in the entire kingdom that people were legally allowed to pray to just admitted out loud that he can do nothing for Daniel, and Daniel's God is going to have to save him. Now, it'd be easy to get mad here and say, Seriously, dude? Consider this, the king is actually appealing, perhaps with the faintest glimmer of hope, but he's appealing to God. And looking at my own life, um, and I, I'd encourage you to look at yours, breaking through my human pride, it's miraculously difficult. God seems to employ various and usually painful methods to bring about repentance, uh, to acknowledge that I need him now, and that in truth, I've needed him all along. Well, that's why I think this is a beautiful irony. Because God's in the process of bringing the most prideful person in the entire kingdom, someone who would sign a law saying you had to pray to him, God's humbling King Darius. See, it's after he's been tricked, outplayed, and is seemingly powerless to intervene. That's when Darius acknowledges that he himself is not God. All it takes is the consistent prayers and impending death by lions of his most faithful administrator. Okay, let's go into verse 17. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating or without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the foreshadowing here. Daniel's put into a den full of lions with a stone sealing him in. He's been sacrificed as the result of Darius's sin, his pride. This is this similar to anything else? 
So Jesus would already be dead when placed in his tomb, but I can't help but see Daniel's situation foreshadowing Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. And though I might share the same name as Daniel, I've got to admit that in this story, I see myself and Darius and the jealous administrators. Verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? We see Darius's question in anguished voice. He, he doesn't have faith that Daniel's been saved exactly, but he's almost there. He has a glimmer of hope in Daniel's rescue from, by God. And that brings us to one of the most important aspects of prayer, that prayer is worship. Now, worship is a really churchy word, and I think it's easy to use without thinking about. What's worship? Well, the only times I hear it used outside the church are in phrases like hero worship or, or worshiping the ground they stand on. Inside the church, it's probably most used to mean singing songs to God, although there are a lot more things we also apply it to. But even though it's a less commonly used term, I can tell you definitively that everyone, everyone, Christian or not, everyone worships. Because the dictionary defines worship as to honor or show reverence for as, for as a divine being or supernatural power. Now, while good, I think it's easy to skip over the fact that applying this definition to our actions means we all behave as functional polytheists to one extent or another. Now, seriously, we tend to worship tons of different things in our life, most of all, ourselves. Now, think about it. Who or what do you live for? What gives your life meaning? Who do you honor with your free time? What, what brings you joy? These, these questions point to our purpose, our life's goals, the people or things that, given the chance, we'd love to spend more of our lives focused on. Everyone believes their life has a sense of meaning and that the, the time you spend in pursuit of that, in focused pursuit of your identity, well, that's worship. Now, I'll admit, I, I rarely stop to think about what I want most, my life's meaning and my goals, and these can be difficult questions to answer, but maybe some other diagnostic questions can help, focusing on the ways in which we worship. Like our time. Like, how do we spend our free time? Or, or looking at our money. How do we enjoy spending money? Or, or even our connections. Like, what do we think about most when we're alone, and what do we share with friends? Or even prayer, independence. Who do, who do you ask for help and rely on when things get difficult? I'd argue where we put our focus, that's what we really worship. And what I've found is that if I'm honest, what I worship most often is myself, or my work, living to work, not working to live for Christ, or even just games. And that's part of why I asked everyone to turn off their phones today. In addition to seeing, is it harder to be more disconnected from the internet than disconnected from God? Because I know that in my life, it's pretty easy to get distracted, and it's the things that we can't put down that are sometimes practically gods in our life. When we see prayer as a form of, of worship, of dependence, of connection, I think the whole story begins to make more sense. See, prayer replaces our worship of ourselves and other things with worship of God. And praying to Darius would be a violation of commandment one, but then the so, so is not praying to God. 
Because the first and greatest commandment, as explained by Jesus in Matthew 22, is this. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. We'd all probably hesitate if told to bow down to a false god. But it's a lot easier to succumb to apathy and not bow down to the real one. And by doing so, we gradually veer away from the path of faithfulness and of life. That's why the gospel is what we need to be reminded of every single time we gather together. The gospel, the good news that God went to any means necessary in order to offer us life, sending us his son Jesus to live perfectly, die in our place, and rise from the dead to offer us freedom and grace. See, the gospel and our response of repentance should be anything but a one-time thing in our lives. They're ongoing, daily bread, living water, because in the words of John Calvin, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. I think it's true. See, the difference between a follower of Jesus and someone who rejects him is what we do when we're confronted with the recurring proof that we're not God. And we're serving other gods that aren't really gods at all. Do we change direction toward Jesus and receive his words? His, his life? His joy? Or do we try to continue manufacturing our own? I've mentioned repentance a few times, and, and that's the thing I want to leave you with today in the discussion of what is prayer. Because prayer is always effective. Prayer is always effective. Does, does prayer make God do what we, what we want? No. And others from the teaching team will cover in the coming weeks how to pray and, and when to pray. But, but God is God, and he already knows what we need, what we want, and what he's going to do. But prayer is always effective because he wants us to pray. He instructs us to pray. He teaches us to pray. Jesus modeled prayer. And it's an invitation to talk with, to spend time with God himself. It's effective because every minute you spend talking with God, well, that's a minute you spend talking with God. And prayer has a way of changing us so that we want more of what God wants and experience more of the joy in the life that Jesus offers. So as the, the band comes back up, um, I'd like to leave you guys with King Darius's takeaway. Uh, listen to the end of the chapter when he shares with his entire kingdom the decree that he authors after this miraculously humbling episode. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. I don't know what your takeaway will be, and maybe having your phone off was more distracting than having it on. But I hope that we're all confronted this week with the fact that we're not God, and we need help from the one who is. That we'd remember his love for us, and the fact that he is not far from us, if we will bow a knee and seek him. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for this morning, for your word that challenges us, that challenges me, to come before you and acknowledge, Father, that I need you. I always need you. Help us to seek you this week. Help us to want you. Help us to experience your joy, Father, because in you, we know there is life. 
and life eternal. We pray this in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen.